welcome everyone to Moms for America's Cottage Meeting Seminar Number One, Section Three today, The War That Set Them Free. Thank you so much for joining us. I know summer is upon us. We're busy, we're making plans, we're getting kids to the summer camps, we're traveling, we're at the pool, we're, uh, you know, our, our routines are just a little bit different. It means so much that, to me and to Moms for America that you gather, you, you choose to gather together around the country, really from coast to coast. Vivi and I are coming from Tampa, Florida. She's in the hotel room next to me. We had a wonderful event last night in Polk County, Florida. Uh, there was a group of about 100 mothers and they are so anxious and desirous to start their own cottage meetings. So we came down and we did some trainings and we had a big event last night and the women were so inspiring to all of us, you know, and their desire, they're just like you. They understand that they can go out and activate, but that will only take them so far if they don't have the foundation of knowledge of American history and constitutional principle, which will really give them a foundation to speak authoritatively when they go out and speak before the school boards and, and, and try and, and shore up, you know, their communities. And so anyways, um, that was a fun evening. Uh, after our lesson today, I have to shoot on out, pray that I make the plane. It's my little son's birthday. He's not little anymore. He's six, four, but it's his birthday. So I'm going to try and get home for the birthday dinner. But I love, I love this lesson that we're studying today. Remember the last few weeks we've been studying last week about um, how God raised up certain people for that very purpose to do what they did. Samuel Adams, the father of the American revolution. Thomas Jefferson, you know, he how he was able to strike off these inspired documents, the Declaration of Independence, the genius of Thomas Jefferson, truly. And then today, and then the following week, our first little lesson in our seminar one book, we talked about Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, and the pilgrims. You know, the little mamas in Polk County are starting to watch the cottage meetings, uh, the 12 introductory lessons in our cottage meeting resource manual. And they wanted to tell me so much about the first video that we recommend in lesson number one, Anchored in Hope. And that um, movie is called Monumental. It was with Kirk Cameron. It was produced in uh, 2012, so almost a decade ago. And it's wonderful. It gives the history of, of the pilgrims and, and why they did what they did. And uh, it reminded me, it's been 10 years since I watched Monumental, but Vivian uh, has spoken so highly of it. And I heard these mamas speak. And so put that on your, I'm going to give you a lot of suggestions today for interesting movies. You know, it is summer, so we have more time to watch the movies. I went to In the Heights uh, the other day, the first actual movie in a theater that I had popcorn with in over a year. And that was pretty good. I liked it. It was, you know, Lin-Manuel of Hamilton and he wrote In the Heights and it was a musical in the Hispanic community, Washington Heights. It has nothing to do with history. I'm just saying it was fun to go to a real movie and I'm going to give you some uh, movie recommendations today for for summer monumental being our first one so anyways hey we're gonna start our our next um, seminar two in two weeks from now so I hope you've had a chance if you don't already have it to order um, manual number two the founders charter of freedom and this is all on the Constitution girls this is where your power comes from because after you spend four weeks studying the constitution from the 
uh, viewpoint of the founders and what came after um, the founders that have caused to kind of disrupt what they gave us. You will probably know more about the Constitution than anyone you know, hands down. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying even members of Congress. So just know it, it might feel like it's kind of hard because it's, you know, some new ideas. But if you just keep at this, you're going to start to understand what they meant, what the founders meant when they wrote the Constitution, how it was meant to protect families and to protect the moral fiber of the families and strong local self-government that was embedded in those first 10 amendments known as the Bill of Rights. So get your little manual and get ready because we'll start on that in uh, two weeks from now. Okay, so here we go, girls. Let's get open our manuals to section three, the war that would set them free. We're going to talk about how the first U.S. Constitution almost lost the Revolutionary War for them. That first U.S. Constitution was called the Articles of Confederation. Does that sound familiar? These Articles of Confederation really had no teeth. It was loosely drawn. Now, just about a month or two before we declared our independence in 1776, they called together a special co uh, committee to, to draft this article of confederation. And, uh, you know, little did they realize the founders that it was going to take 11 years before they were really going to put together a sound constitution for a free and prosperous people because they had a lot to learn in 1776. Thomas Jefferson would go on to write, we had never been permitted to exercise self-government. So when we were forced to assume it, we were novices in the science. So it would take 16 months of this committee going back and forth, debating it to finally come up with a draft that really left the central government weak and the states vigorously independent. And it was this article of confederation that almost caused the US to lose the Revolutionary War. I, the war. I think it's interesting. It took 16 months to come up with this weak little articles of confederation. And at this time, war is raging now, 1776. But ultimately in 1880s or 1787, when they would meet at Independence Hall in Philly, it would only take four months for the, the inspired constitution that we live under to come together. And you could see God's hand was in that moment uh, in, in 87 and we, 1787. And we will talk about that next week. So what this Articles of Confederation did, it didn't do a lot, to be honest with you. It, it allowed Congress to uh, raise up the armies and to declare war, and the Congress could sign the treaties, but it did not allow them to raise revenue through taxes or to regulate trade and collect tariffs. Do you see that little diagram there? It had no, it had no executive branch. There was no federal judicial systems. Uh, you know, really the colonists had never experienced um, a time when they were knew or had any power over the courts because that was always what the king did. The king in England ran the courts. And certainly they had no power. The government had no power. So they had to tax. So they had no way of enforcing states to pay the money that was desperately needed for the troops and the ammunitions and the supplies. And so really 
the national government had to depend upon the cooperation of the states, just at the mercy of the states to come forth and give, you know, what they felt like they could. So Congress, uh, with this little Articles of Confederation, really hadn't found that balance center on the political spectrum that Jefferson would go on to say was so essential. And in fact, the Articles of Confederation, look at that little diagram there in your work, work, workbook, a kind of a, a, a continuum there. The Articles of Confederation was closer towards anarchy. So really most of, of history, people have been ruled uh, by ruler's law under kingly governments or monarchs. And in the last century, the isms have, have kind of taken over the, the ruler's law. So socialism, Marxism, communism, where power is in the hands of just a few. And then on the opposite end of that continuum is anarchy. And that's just like mob rule. And that's what we saw in the French Revolution, you know. And so uh, it wasn't until, you know, Moses, actually, Moses found common law and people's law. And we saw that the Anglo-Saxons did, and it would take some time, but that's what our founders, you know, gleaned from. And then, then when they established our government uh, at the voice of the people um, in, in the balance center, and, and that is the beauty of what, you know, what they did. And we kind of see that played out there in that spectrum. So in spite of the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, there were still over 50 major provisions that were later going to be included in the Constitution. So we're not saying it was all bad, but uh, the Articles of Confederation kind of came into full force in 1781. So despite the weakness of this little first Constitution, the war was on and it was going to be eight years of a frustrating experience for everyone involved. The Americans were caught without a well-structured system of a strong central government to run the war. They were facing the most powerful army and navy in the entire world with the British army and navy. It was like little David and Goliath, David going up against Goliath. America had no uh, army really, except for the little ragtag army that George Washington could cobble together. And they had no Navy whatsoever. And uh, there was no money that the government had to finance the war. And so everyone was always, you know, starving or cold or, uh, you know, shoeless or lacking in supplies and equipment and ammunition. It's interesting to remember out of the 3 million people that lived on the Eastern seaboard in the colonies at the time, only 3% were fighting on the side. They were patriots fighting for independence. 94% of the citizenry were just apathetic. They were just busy with their own little lives, planting the gardens on the farm. Kind of sounds like today is apathy reigning supreme a little bit in our country. And then the other 3% were the enemies. And we definitely have enemies out there who were loyal to the crown. They were known as Tories. You know, it's interesting to note that um, the, the uh, Tory party in England eventually would emerge into what is known today as the Conservative Party. And that is the party that Winston Churchill belonged to, that Margaret Thatcher belonged to, and that the current prime minister today, Boris Johnson, 
belongs to, that conservative party that had its roots in the Tory party. Now, I've been seeing a lot of uh, Boris Johnson in the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. I live in Chevy Chase, Maryland, just a suburb of Washington, D.C., because President Biden has been over in England for the G7 summit. The G7 stands for a group of seven nations, and they meet every year. And the picture I saw of um, the prime minister and the Bidens the other day and the prime minister's wife, her, her name is Carrie Simmons. I looked and then I looked again because I thought, wow, she looks like she could be his daughter. So I, I looked her up and she is. She's half the age that he is. She, he's 56. She's 33. And she had the distinction of being the first uh, first lady, I guess, um, to, to live at 10 Downing, is that how you say it, uh, that she was not married to him. And then they had a baby in 2021. And oh, hallelujah, they got married this year. I'm a big proponent of marriage. So I'm glad that they finally did get married. But that G7 summit, which I think just ended, I don't know if you've been following that, that was held in Cornwall, England, which is at the southern tip of England. And on either side, uh, it's it, it has the Atlantic Ocean around it. Now I tell you this because I'm gonna give you another suggestion. Cornwall, England, there is the best historical drama uh, on Netflix called Poldark. And it is the story, have you heard about it? And it takes place in Cornwall, England. And it goes for five seasons. There's 43 episodes. I believe you can find it on Amazon, Poldark, P-O-L-D-A-R-K. And it's the story of a young British soldier that fought in the Revolutionary War. And then he comes back in 1781 and it spans about 20 years of his life. And it tells his story of, of life in England immediately after the Revolutionary War. It is, it's really good, pull dark. So put that on maybe your list of movie watching uh, this summer as well. Okay, that doesn't really add too much. Uh, 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 I just wanted to, to kind of deviate. I just thought that was interesting um, given, uh, you know, the, the English parties, the loyalty to the, the Tories and, and, and how that party looks today. That very Tory party is, is what the prime minister of England belongs to. But, but really what I, the point I wanna make here is God works through small and simple numbers and small and simple means to bring about his purposes. He doesn't need a majority uh, of something to win. You know, just like, you know, give me 10 and I will save Sodom and Gomorrah. Just give me enough people that will repent of their wicked ways and humble themselves and turn to me and I can heal your land. And so I hope that point is made clearly to you. It was only 3% of the population in America that were even tuned into this need for freedom and independence. And God used that little 3% to establish this great land of America. And so... Um, also at this time, the assistance of France, uh, and we know, remember, without our little uh, Joan of Arc, we wouldn't have had a France. She saved their country, and 350 years later, they came to our assistance. Well, they were, they were significant in what they did at the Battle of Yorktown, that last battle. But throughout the eight years, their, their help was a little disappointing. In fact, the, our workbook says extremely disappointing. Where were you, France? Maybe we could have ended this thing after four years instead of eight years. But um, anyways, 
So you know how last week we said the early part of 1776, uh, the glorious 1776, well, it didn't feel too glorious if you were living through it. Well, the latter part of 1776 was even more disastrous because now our troops were starting to really meet with resistance. In the summer of 1776, after we, we declared our independence, King George wasn't playing. He mobilized the troops and sent over 20,000 soldiers, the largest army that had ever been assembled uh, in um, the Western hemisphere. And of course, he's along with that came the largest fleet, 400 ships uh, to assemble in the Western hemisphere. Uh, with General Howe's brother commanding the army, no, General Howe commanding the army and his brother uh, commanding the naval fleet. So there was a battle in New York and it went very badly. Um, and without a Navy, we could do little, but just a little token resistance. And so we were driven um, from Long Island and we forced an, along the banks uh, of Brooklyn and the East River and we would eventually make our way uh, across and, and escape on through White Plains. But there's the beautiful story. I told it to my children about the miracle of the fog. So they're, they're, they're in Brooklyn looking out probably over the skyline of Manhattan, but there was no skyline and they certainly didn't call it, I don't think Manhattan, maybe they did. Did they call it Manhattan in 1776? So anyways, the, you know, there's 20,000 British troops and there's only 9,000 George Washington uh, soldiers. And so these fierce winds blew up and they, the British weren't able to make their way up the East River to conquer them. And so they all just kind of camped out for the, for the evening and they were going to wait until the next morning to conquer George Washington's troops. Well, George Washington did the unthinkable that night with his 9,000 troops. They lit fires as a decoy, you know, to, to make the British think that they were staying there. They were camping out along the banks of Brooklyn there. And then this is where the miracle occurs. In rolls this heavy fog and it stays the whole night. And now through the entire night, 9,000 men are scuttled over uh, across into to New York. And then they're going to make their way on up through White Plains. And um, so when the British woke up the next morning, they were gone. And George Washington would actually say the finger of providence blinded the eyes of our enemies. And he would go on to talk about 66 times when he saw the hand of God during these eight years of this war. So morale was always low when they would lose uh, a war and they were chronically short of supplies and ammunition. And George Washington knew they needed a win. Now it was Christmas time, 1776. They were in, in Pennsylvania. And the enlistments were going to end December 31, and it's now December, and he knows his little soldiers are not going to re-enlist. And um, he said, it's victory or it's death, and it takes us to Washington's Crossing. That's actually the name of the town in Pennsylvania, and the Delaware goes through. So on one side is, is um, Washington Crossing. Um, Pennsylvania and on the other side is Washington crossing New Jersey and then the Delaware River. 
So I've been to Washington's Crossing several times in the last few months. There's a beautiful visitor center there. There are buildings that have been recreated. Actually, I think they're the original buildings. The Thompson Neely Farm, where the officers and soldiers stayed on that Christmas night is uh, um George Washington was going to shuttle 2,400 of his troops across the Delaware, and then they were going to march for 10 miles through a blizzard up to Trenton, New Jersey. And, and as you go to Washington Crossing, girls, put Washington Crossing on your bucket list. There is the, um, the McConkie Ferry Inn right there at the Delaware where George Washington ate dinner before he crossed the Delaware, and uh, they would go on to defeat the 1,500 Haitian troops that were occupying Trenton. And this really signified the first victory of the war. And he was able to convince the troops to stay on, and they would go on to take Princeton. It, it became known as the 10 Crucial Days. And so, um, you know, there were many heroes in the Revolutionary War, but for sheer grit and still girded fortitude, none exceeded George Washington. And Vivian always makes fun of me because I always get weepy when I tell the stories of George Washington. He's just like my guy, you know, he's my dude. Next to my man, George Washington's my dude. But, you know, George Washington, he left a life that he loved on the Potomac, his Mount Vernon. He was a prominent farmer. He had five separate farms that were a part of his estate. He inherited 3,000 acres. And at his death, he would leave 7,600 acres to Martha. And he loved... He loved his land. He talks so adoringly in Mount Vernon and he, he left that for eight miserable years to fight in this war and he left his love, Martha. And Martha would often travel up to be with him during those long, lonely winters, particularly she was there from February to June during uh, Valley Forge when things looked its bleakest. And there she would organize daily meals for the staff. There were um, I'll tell you about Valley Forge, but there are actually homes and officers' quarters and, and Washington's quarters at Valley Forge. You can go tour, but she would arrange meals and, and she would entertain, you know, the guests that would come in. Apparently there, you know, there was travel. They were in Valley Forge for six months regrouping and she would mend the soldiers' clothes. She would knit their wool socks. She would go out amongst the troops and provide comfort and good cheer to them during a really dismal, dismal, difficult time of the war. And, you know, I thought, isn't that what we women do? We are anchored in hope so we can shore up and lift up and encourage others. And Martha was such a beautiful example of that. I mean, I really think Martha her main job was to uphold George Washington so George Washington could then uphold this nation. So don't you tell me that her roles and responsibilities were just as important, I really believe, as George Washington's. And so, you know, that time at Valley Forge, everyone just regrouped uh, from the battles that they had had. So for about six months, the British were, you know, had now were controlling New York and New York at that time was the second largest city in the colonies and they had control of it now. Philadelphia was the largest city uh, at that time. And so disease was just running rampant through Valley Forge. It, it killed 2,000 of the troops over that six-month period. And this is also that famous uh, picture of George Washington praying in the 
woods at Valley Forge that I love. I told that story to my kids so many times throughout their life that when George Washington had nowhere else to go, his troops were starving. It was a cold, harsh winter. Um, there was disease. His, his, you know, they were threatening to leave. His officers were threatening to leave. Oftentimes in writings and journals of farmers and people who lived around that area, they would say they would come upon an accidental sighting of George in the woods praying to his God. And then that story of his two of his officers were, went to go find him because they were going to leave and they found him praying and they could not leave him. And so they just went back. And so that Valley Forge time was a real refiner fires time for the 9,000, actually there was 12,000 soldiers that, that camped out there. But when the spring came, a wonderful man, God rises up men sometimes, the angels, to come swoop in and help. And there was a wonderful man, he was like a drill sergeant by the name of Baron von Steuben. Uh, he was from Prussia and he came over from Prussia and he taught these troops these little, you know, ragtag little farmers and young boys and old men, new skills of fighting, and they became a unified army. And even though the war would last five more years, Valley Forge was really a turning point as they became more united as, as they stayed the full six months. And by the time they left Valley Forge in 17, it would have been 78, 1778. It was actually the fourth largest city in America with those 12,000 soldiers and everyone else that might have been living around that area. And so, um, you know, uh, at, at the time of the war, there was never a time that George Washington was completely and wholeheartedly supported either by Congress or the states or even some of his top officers. There was a lot of intrigue and betrayal going on uh, amongst some of the most experienced soldiers. His other generals, General Gates and Lee had been former British soldiers and they wanted to be commander in chief. And so George Washington's bodyguard uh, had actually been convinced to kill him. <laughs> And so that plot was discovered. And, um, and so poor George, he, he didn't really have, you know, too many people on his side, it would have seemed like. He won most of his battles with men who were starving, freezing, poorly clothed, poorly equipped, half-trained, and often um, ill. And after every battle, if, if it was less than victorious, his armies would just kind of melt away to maybe two or 3,000 stalwarts. And then he'd have to recruit a new round of uh, men for the next battle. Girls, I have to recommend the real George Washington. I talked about the real Thomas Jefferson last week. And you can get these books at our Moms for America store. This is so good. Honestly, about a third of this book is just the sources that are cited, the citations, you know, because you never know when you read books on our founders, if it's just, you know, historians having fun with them. And so this is such a good book, such an easy read. I have read stories out of this book for years. That's where I learned about his bodyguard uh, having, a, I guess, a contract out to kill him. And so um, anyways, I really recommend this. You know, how was he able to do what he did with everything and everyone against him, it would seem. So during the bleakest times of the war, during Valley Forge, one day he was in his room 
And he spent the whole afternoon there and he had a vision and an angel came to him and showed him three periods of history that would come to be in this land. It, the angel showed him the Revolutionary War and then it showed him the Civil War and then it showed him other wars to come through and they would be dire and devastating times but that this nation would endure and we would prevail. And I have to think God gave him this vision. Otherwise, he might have just given up. You know, he might have just thrown in the towel himself. So when God really needs to, he will come to our aid and he will send physical people or, you know, heavenly visitors to shore us up. So when he came out of that room that day, there was a soldier there by the name of Anthony Sherman. And he told him what he had experienced in that room that afternoon. And he told Anthony Sherman not to ever mention this to anyone until he had died. And so this vision is on record in the Library of Congress. If you want to read uh, or watch a little YouTube video, if you just Google YouTube, George Washington, Prophecy of America, Trey Smith, he does an interesting like 28 minute video on this vision that George Washington had at Valley Forge. But really, if you just type in George Washington Prophecy of America, Trey Smith, it will come up and a lot of information will come up. It's a fascinating vision that George Washington had at that time at Valley Forge. So the war um, was going to rage on for four more miserable years beyond Valley Forge. But in 1781, the British general, General Cornwallis had encountered uh, uh, two battles with Washington. Now there were 21 battles in the Revolutionary War. Uh, the US won 10, the Brits won nine, and two of them were a two, draw, two draws. So out of the 21, we, we won 10, which is pretty darn remarkable. But, um, you know, they had been fighting now for 10 years and uh, Cornwallis on, on the, Brit, uh, the British general had suffered great losses. And so he raised his troops to Yorktown and Yorktown is only about 20 minutes from Jamestown. Jamestown is where the first group of colonists in 1607 from England came. Both Jamestown and Yorktown and then Colonial Williamsburg is right in the center. So Jamestown, then 10 minutes down the road is Colonial Williamsburg. And then 10 minutes further down the road is Yorktown. You got to put those on your bucket list as well. I lived in uh, Colonial Williamsburg for about a year. And so uh, every other week I was going to these sites. They have beautiful visitor centers and reenactments of the battles and the huts and the ships and the Anyways, it's beautiful. But Yorktown in that day probably wasn't quite so beautiful. So uh, George Washington, they were up against the water there. And, um, and uh, the general, Cornwallis, was hoping that the British Navy would come and rescue them. But the French, the French finally arrived and the French fleet had wiped out those British ships that had to, you know, ragtaggly get back to New York to be repaired. And so George Washington saw this as a great opportunity. So we had the French fleet covering the seacoast while he marched his troop overland to surround Yorktown. And that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back after eight years. Cornwallis surrendered. The Brits were tired of war. Both sides were exhausted, but the Americans refused 
to admit defeat and as you know as really pathetic as their little supplies and troops were they refused to give in and they would prevail what does that say when things look so bad in our life if we just refuse to lay down and die kind of thing if we just keep going <laughs> we can prevail i just love these stories they're just so inspiring to me you know and so King James III was going to try and embrace the people, you know, to keep at it. But the, the people had lost all heart for it. So it would take about a year and a half for the treaty uh, to be completed and for uh, England to acknowledge the independence of the United States. And George Washington waited until the very last regiment uh, of British troops had departed out of New York in um, 1783. Got I dry my eyes here, girls. Sorry, there goes my makeup. Oh, well. And he came into uh, New York City in 1783 at the 1st of December. And he met at Francis's tavern, all, all of his officers, and he was going to bid them farewell at a tavern that still exists today. It's on Broad and Pearl, down kind of in the financial district, the Wall Street area of Manhattan. Girls, you got to go to Francis's Tavern. You can get a meal. It's like colonial style restaurant. It's delicious food. And on the second floor, there's this museum. And that's actually where he had dinner with his troops. Francis Tavern. It's, it's actually one of the oldest surviving buildings. Most of New York was burned during the Revolutionary War. This little Francis Tavern survived. And it's the oldest in New York, they like to claim, one of the oldest surviving buildings, Francis's Tavern, built in 1719. You can go have lunch or dinner there. And so the little tavern in December of 1783 hosted a dinner for Washington and all of his officers. And Washington would go on to say, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. And then after his farewell, it was said that he wept as he went around and took each one of his officers' hands and said something personal to at them. And an eyewitness that was there that evening would go on to write, I had never seen a scene of sorrow and weeping. I had never witnessed such as before that. And um, and so you got you got to go there. You got to go up to that second floor and just feel the spirit of the events that took place there. Can I give you one more recommendation? If you're going to be down there in Manhattan in that area, patriotic tours of New York City. If you just Google patriotic tours of New York City, that's the name of the company. Up comes a tour, it's, and it's, uh, it's running. Her name is Karen. She's a great patriot. She runs this company. It's a two-and-a-half-hour tour that she takes of really interesting historical uh, sites during the Revolutionary War. And then she ends, you meet at City Hall down in Manhattan, and then she ends the tour just across the street from Francis's Tavern. So, I mean, it's the most delicious half-a-day experience to take that tour from a true patriot and then to eat at Francis's Tavern. Just another suggestion of some fun things to do this summer. So anyways, okay. And then after he had his little farewell uh, dinner, he would go on uh, to take his little horse and, and report 
uh, in and resign his commission as commander in chief of the Continental Army in Annapolis, Maryland. For a year, the temporary capital was in Annapolis, Maryland. Now I live in Maryland, Chevy Chase, Maryland. Annapolis, Maryland is where the Naval Academy is today. It's a wonderful town. It's just teeming with uh, those plebes and those midshipmen from the, the Navy and their whites. I just am so proud of those kids that uh, choose to serve that way. But George Washington showed up and reported, uh, gave a report of uh, all that had transpired and resigned his commission to Congress that was meeting there. And it said, as he spoke, um, he talked about God intervening in this war. He cited 60, I don't think he went through every 66, but historians have gleaned he, 66 times he talked about the divine hand of providence directing the events of the Revolutionary War. And then when he began to speak uh, about the appreciation of his uh, officers, his emotions welled up in him again, and he couldn't speak and his voice faltered. And it said that all the specters there that day wept with him and hardly a member of Congress. There was hardly a member of Congress who did not drop tears as well at these emotional occasions. And he at this point was an older man and I'm sure he was broken down and graying and it, it said his eyesight was going and he'd have to pull out his specs because he had spent eight years, you know, battling the elements and, and all that that Warren tells. And so can you see why we love George? Can you see why we just have to have a hanky when we're talking about the great George Washington? So after the war, I wanna make sure I'm getting in everything. There's a wonderful story about my little daughter and I, I've shared this before. Girls, um, my little um, daughter served a church mission when she was 19 years old on the Amazon River in Iquitos, Peru. It was like a jungle mission, and it was a hard thing for her to do, and she wanted to come home. We only got to talk to her a couple times a year, and she would weep, and I would weep with her, and I'm like, oh, this is hard, and she would say when she came home, and she, she served honorably. She said, Mama, the thing that got me through my dark hours sometimes in this Amazon river where there was no roads, it was muddy, there was lice, rats, huts, you know, I mean, it was, it was a little tough. She was teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to the people of Peru. She said, I remember that big picture of Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington that we have on our mantle today. And we would always have a little, we have morning devotionals in our home in the morning where we teach a little scripture and we, teach some principles of history and the constitution and she said i'll never forget almost once a week you or dad would point to that picture of mount vernon and say george washington longed to, to come home to the, the ease and the comfort of the potomac and his mount vernon but he knew that god had to work for him to do and he stayed the course eight years of the war and eight more years serving ultimately as the president and because he did it made all the difference to us today. And she said, I remember that story, mom. And I knew somehow that if I would just stay the course that it may, it might make all the difference to someone in Peru. And mostly what it did is it made all the difference to this young girl because it taught her to be gritty and it taught her what courage, that story of George Washington, it taught her what courage uh, looked like and what faith looked like. 
And she is going on now to do some remarkable things. Kayla Rosie, I love that little girl. But I love that story she tells about George Washington. So as you tell these stories to the children, these stories go directly to their heart and it inspires their thoughts and their minds in their dark hours. And they remember these things. And my little Frankie, who's a basketball player in the NBA, will tell me, mom, it was your stories of, of um, uh, George Washington Valley Forge when he had nowhere else to go but to get on his knees. And he's told me his stories when he had nowhere else to go, when he was scared and, and felt such heavy burden having to go out there and perform amongst some of the greatest athletes in the world. And he would drop to his knees in the dirty bathroom stalls around the country and, and petition God for help. And don't you know, as we tell these stories to our children in their hours of need, these stories will rise up and will give them some confidence and courage to kind of move forward and do what they need to do. Okay, so girls, it's after the war now. It's 1783. Thomas Jefferson has written several drafts of, of Constitution because he certainly wasn't pleased with the Articles of Confederation. Thomas Jefferson was actually going to take an assignment to be a minister in France, and he was going to be gone for several years, but he was going to give send many books back and forth to James Madison to help him as James was really going to be known as the father of the Constitution. And uh, we know that Thomas Jefferson, through his study, had discovered what John Adams would later call the divine science of natural law the natural law of sound government. And Thomas Jefferson wondered, were there natural laws that could possibly produce a dynamic and prosperous economy for everyone so that everyone could have a high standard of living? So in 19, excuse me, 1776, just as the free people of modern times were kind of coming into existence in America, God rose up an economist, a Scottish economist, in 1776, who was a friend of Benjamin Franklin by the name of, um, oh my word, I just went blank, Adam Smith, who would go on to write that famous book that is still studied in the good colleges, good uh, curriculums, economic curriculums and colleges known as the wealth of nations that he talks all about a free market economy. And in this book, Adam Smith writes, gold is, wealth is not gold or silver, but it's the essentials of life. It's food, it's clothes, it's houses, it's transportation, it's schools, it's good roads and factories and well-cultivated farms. And Adam Smith in his book, um, the wealth of nations would go on to say, if you want an increased standard of living for everybody, not just the haves and the have-nots that pretty much had been, you know, history up until that point, you need to make services and goods abundant and cheap. And how is this achieved? He writes uh, the principles of the free market uh, of supply and demand and specialized production and buying and selling in a free market and how everyone life improves when people make profit. And then he, he spells out the principles of competition and I'm not going through them very thoroughly, but you know, as you would read it, you would go, well, yeah, of course, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's just, you know, intuitive. That's what all we've ever known is life under a free market. Uh, but Back in that day, 
that was completely new to them. They had never lived, uh, you know, in a capitalistic society. And in fact, today, many people are still very afraid of uh, the free market and they want to save us from ourselves. You know, um, Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat would come along 50 years later and he was a big proponent and advocate of Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. And um, Frederick Bastiat has written a book called The Law. Have you heard of it? It's a real, I didn't bring it with me. It's a real little book, but it's really good. And he said the greatest single threat Frederick Bastiat did in The Law is um, the greatest single threat to liberty is the government. And we know one of the principles of liberty and the 5,000 year leap, the 15th principle, the founders knew. They said the highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market society and a minimum of government regulations. And you know we know this worked because within the first hundred years of, of, of living under the constitution and these free market principles, even though we only held 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. So we know that, that this combination of these prosperity economics and constitutional principles are inspired and they work. Can I just recommend, remember the Tuttle Twin books? There's 12 of these little books. So I just saw Connor Boyick the um, last two weeks, a week ago in Austin, Texas at a conference I went to through the Heritage Foundation. And he said, Jolini, he didn't call me Jolini. He called me Juline, but I know him well, I like him. He said, um, my cartoons are coming out. They're gonna, the first one is going to come out in September and then I'll release a cartoon a month, kind of like The Chosen, you know, they, they keep us waiting every month. Has the new series, a new episode come out? And so be looking for these cartoons, but he has these 12 little books and one of the books is called The Law and it, it's how to teach your children free, uh, free market principles and it, it has illustrations. I mean, you might just want to skip Frederick Bastick's book and just get this book, The Law, because I usually I learn more in the ch children's versions of things. And then he has another um, little book called The Miraculous Pencil. And it, it teaches the kids, once again, all illustrated the market, the principles of the free market through a little pencil factory. So it just breaks um, capitalism down in a real easy way to understand these two books. So, you know, just put them down on your a, a list of things to buy so your husband doesn't question you why every week you're buying a hundred dollars worth of books you know but but just know that these are the ones that I've used and and that I have to highly recommend and I'm just gonna recommend one more and I recommend I'll recommend this all throughout the next 16 weeks is the promises of the Constitution and I think Gloria who is on our call today Gloria uh, you said that you read this to your kids it's just one page vignette on every kind of aspect of early American history and uh, I think it's it's really an easy, concise way. If you just read this while your kids are eating their Cheerios in the morning, you know, we can you can say you, you've done your liberty teaching for the day in the home. And so um, anyways, OK, the only time the government should get involved in the free market is to uh, referee a legal force fraudulent fraud, phony stocks or bonds, monopolies, eliminating uh, like big tech. That's, I would say we got a monopoly there, mamas, or debauchery, pornography, obscenity, drugs, and prostitution in the free market. Really, basically, Adam Smith sums it up this, 
the free market is this, the freedom to try, the freedom to buy, the, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. You know, government shouldn't swoop in and save us. When people have freedom to, to try, to buy, to sell, to fail, they are actually more responsible. When you are free about uh, the risk that you're going to take, you actually think twice about it. You're more careful. I like to use the example of football, our American football, NFL, versus rugby in um, Australia and throughout Europe. Now, our football players wear all kind of gear, pads, helmets to reduce the risk of injury, and they're reckless out there, and they get injured all the time. And they their careers are over in one play because they just, you know, go with their life at each other. Whereas rugby is a very physical game, but they wear absolutely no gear. But there happen to be more injuries to NFL players than rugby players. Now, why would that be? It's because rugby players know that there are more risks, so they actually are smarter about the way that they play. So when you know that you are responsible for you and you're not going to turn to someone to bail you out because of your poor choices, you actually act more responsibly. And I can't help but make the comparison to COVID. You know, it's the difference between looking to the government to give us the stimulus checks or to come up with the vaccinations or have lockdowns or actually force people to get these vaccines and that will solve their problems versus just saying, I'm responsible for my own health. I need to make better choices. I need to boost my immune system so I can ward off disease because disease has been around since the beginning of time. So I think, you know, we'd be less inclined maybe to drink our soda pops and eat our Doritos if we knew that we ultimately we're going to have to live with, you know, the results of our choices. Can I just say we have been in Polk County, um, Florida, uh, the, uh, the last day training the Moms for America. There's going to be five cottage meetings that, we're, that, that the moms want to start. And they're building a structure for Moms for America that they're going to take to all the counties. Florida, good things are happening in Florida and the mamas are awake. I was talking to, new, to two nurses yesterday and they said, if you could see what we see in the hospitals now, it is horrifying. We are seeing more sick people because of some of the vaccinations. And if girls, if you've been vaccinated, this is no judgment on you. But what they're saying is we're seeing more sicknesses because of the vaccine than we did uh, during the COVID times. And one little nurse um, mama that I was talking to said she's probably going to have to quit because they're saying anyone that doesn't get the vaccine in the hospital cannot work for them or they're going to identify, they have to put, uh, they put a sticker on her badge uh, if you've had the vaccine and if you don't have a sticker, then she said, uh, then everyone knows you haven't had the vaccine and she said it's becoming um, very uncomfortable and we are not allowed to say anything. So, what you know, turning back to again, just being responsible for our decisions and 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 living accordingly, uh, and therefore we can enjoy maximum freedom because I think she's not feeling very free right now in her profession. She's going to have to leave a profession that she's been in for 14 years because the government is now dictating and telling us, you know, what we can and cannot do or participate in if we have or have not, you know, done certain things. And so 
anyways, what that's going to end our lesson today, my dear sisters, you know, it's going to be a monumental task moving forward now uh, to glean from history, these natural laws of freedom and security and prosperity, and to put these principles that uh, they're discovering into a practical operation of a, a government. And, and this is what is going to take us next week into that constitutional convention four years later. And um, that beautiful, the miracle of that convention and that beautiful document that came forth, we're going to call that the perils of freedom. And this will be the last section of this first book. Did you not love this book and the stories and just kind of cementing this American, early American history. And you can see how men, you know, really did raise up these men and women throughout history. And I hope it has been clear to you to see that God was definitely in the hand and building of this nation. And as we contemplate George Washington's ragtag little army beating the largest empire in the world and all the miracles ensued to make that happen with the fog and the courage of Washington and his vision and just putting the right people showing up in place at the, at the right times, Captain, you know, Von Steubing and the French ships. And then of course the genius of Thomas Jefferson to glean and compile from history, these natural laws of sound government that he would need to help write the constitution. And then um, after, Adam Smith and his book of Wealth of Nations that was just going to come around uh, at the same time that this new government was being formed. I mean, God in heaven did not establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse in oblivion. God will save America. I know he will. He can heal our land if we will do our part, if we're willing to put in the efforts to learn the things and then to get on that wall and to say, okay, Lord, here am I, send me, what do you want me to do? And so um, thank you so much, darling girls, for your attention today. Um, I'm going to uh, bid farewell. I like that expression. I think they use that during the Revolutionary War time. So I always say, I'm going to bid you adieu. And we will see you uh, next week for the last little section of Seminar 1. Take care. Have a wonderful week, dear ladies. <laughs>